Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, and on this episode of Jill on Money, we are going to find out how to take on the world and win. Really, the art of rule-breaking is in writing new rules. And this, I think, is the opportunity which is so relevant to us now. What are the new rules that we're going to step into when so obviously many of the rules that we've been following are no longer fit for purpose and, in fact, increasingly flawed? Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. I'm Jill Schlesinger, your host. And boy, this is going to be a great, great interview. I loved this guy. He's one of those people like when we interviewed Chris Gillibo and he walked into the studio and I fell in love with him. Sam Conniff Allende is the same sort of human being. He walked into the studio. We hugged like we were old friends. It was a great interview. Sam is a pretty cool marketing expert with a great origin story. When you find out how he became the master of the marketing universe in the UK, you are going to be so impressed. He's written a book called Be More Pirate or How to Take on the World and Win. And this is really instructive. It's a slim, beautiful little book. You're going to love it. So here's our interview with Sam Conniff Allende. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. Sam Conniff Allende. Welcome to the program. How are you? I'm very well indeed. All the better for being here. Thank oh you for my the invitation. God, I just keep talking. I'm <laughs> melting. I'm so happy. It could be the crappiest book that you wrote. You could be a fraud. I don't care. I'm both of those things. Oh, and you wear it well. Uh, Sam, we begin the program <laughs> with a question. You ready? This is perfect for you because your book is called Be More Pirate. Or how to take on the world and win. That sounds good. Okay, you ready? Can I have that as an audio clip? Sure. Okay. Best financial or maybe in your case, best career decision you've ever made? Hmm. Best financial or career decision that I've ever made. I... The truth is, you rarely know, do you? In retrospect, I could make them sound like they were good decisions. In retrospect, doing this book was a good decision. Um, if you were to ask my wife, which is a good always, I think, teller of the truth, the the day the manuscript was due was the same day my second daughter was born, which was the same day I got my P45 from the agency that I'd run and turned into a global organization over 15 years. So it seemed like a rather bad decision as we came into a new year and a new chapter of our family with no foresight to any income whatsoever. But here I am one year later uh, with an entirely new perspective and a global opportunity and a book being released in multiple markets. So I think it's, it's really about the risk. Rarely is the decision necessarily the right or best thing you've done. It's your tolerance for risk in the moment. So let's go back a second. You are born and raised in London. I am. And you came out of school and went into marketing directly. What's your background? I grew up in South London. I went to a pretty rough school. My father had died when I was quite small, so I grew up with my mom and my grandma. And I, don't know, I always had this sense of injustice, partly I think the loss of my father, partly because I was in these pretty, you know, I was well-supported middle-class background. My mom was a teacher, my dad had been a lawyer in these quite rough school environments. So I had this real sense of unfairness and a, I really hadn't, hadn't percolated through that I wanted to make a difference. So my teenage years, I knew that education wasn't for me and I started a band. I got kicked out of the band. What uh, did you play? Well, I didn't. I couldn't sing. Uh, and you I, couldn't sing and you didn't play an instrument. I but, wonder why you got kicked out of the band. Well, I came up with a name. Well? 
And I then was made the manager at 15. And I got us our first gig and I put it together in a scout hut, got my sister's boyfriend to sell some beer. I walked away with 250 pounds and that was it. The entrepreneur gene, whatever it is, was unlocked. Hatched. A couple more years not really paying attention to college, you know, doing club nights and gigs and left home, discovered chefing. So I was part chef, part late night rave promoter, um, one kind of funding the other. And that got me into an awful lot of trouble. I traveled the world managing bands and looking after DJs. I got Any bands that we have heard of being the old fart that I am and Mark plays an old fart in the control room? Definitely not. No. no. These are like super hip bands that we would wow. never know. Oh, yeah. Mm. Some DJs, some bands that you would definitely never have heard of mm. uh, in my misspent youth. I got quite a few death threats. I'm still banned from Japan. Um, got in all sorts of really good kind of life lesson trouble. And these raves that I was putting on, they have this kind of subtext of do something different, change the world. I would even put, print that on the flyers, right? And I had no idea how dancing till six in the morning was changing the world, but it kind of made sense in my blurry mind. Uh, and it turned into a business overnight. I was I was designing all these flyers, I was printing a load of material, I was filling in events, and it turned into a promotions company. And I didn't expect that. I got a warehouse, uh, we, we called it Don't Panic, um, and it was the beginning of this real explosion in, in dance music. A lot of brands started getting involved in some of the big festivals and events. Ibiza became a commercially recognized opportunity, lots of money came flooding in. And so you didn't realize it now, but in retrospect, I was at the epicenter of a huge commercial transition of an underground moment that then became a... Uh, commercial property and we were fundamental to that trend and the the publication that we then produced was this really flyer pack you came out of a nightclub you couldn't escape my packet of flyers i then had a network going around the country of young guys giving out these flyer packs everybody came to us to get their materials produced prevent pre-social media this is late 90s it was an incredibly fast marketing conduit to the streets so brands began to take notice couple of the guys that I'd built up an awful lot of credit with I hadn't really realized because I wasn't running a very successful you know dual ledger or I didn't know what the hell I was doing I think it was my 20 22nd birthday and they turned up having calculated that I owed them about a quarter of a million pounds you owed them that seems like is, a little bit of a problem they parked their vans up against the door and threatened to what is the equivalent action. of that wait a second the British equivalent of that so here in the United States we might sort of think of like the mobster uh -huh. coming and saying, we'll break your legs. What yeah. is the English equivalent of that? I think it's pretty much that. That yeah. one. But were, just not, the accent's a little bit more refined. Well, they were they were East End East End guys, so you right. know, it wasn't too refined. No. And they were printers. It was the kind of the, the death of the printing industry, and I'd brought an awful lot of money their way because I'd coalesced all of the UK nightclubs um, spend into this one place. So it would kind of work for everyone until they realized that I didn't have a clue what I was doing <laughs> and was burning through all the cash. <laughs> Which turned out to be a problem for everyone. I'm shocked that they were upset by that. <laughs> well, they gave me, we, we negotiated a deal, and I think I agreed to do 10p on every pound that I would then continue to contract with them and over That's like not bad if you're considering that, like, no. if you give them 10%, big deal. Exactly. So actually, the interest on the loan was, you know, negligible. Yeah. Uh, all they were interested was cash repayment. Um, and I literally started reading business books. I didn't have any other, I'd left college without really paying any attention to it. I'd failed maths routinely. Uh, and so I started reading business books. And I under, began to understand what, you know, dual entry accounting was. I began to get my head around it. Um, uh, and we started to grow the business in different ways. And one of those was, uh, you know, working with nightclubs and record labels gets you so far. And I'd, I'd seen on the peripheral of what we were doing, the, the world of agencies and brands. 
and I went out and started selling this super cool street network. I mean, we were, so you know the Vice guys? Yes. So in those early days, we were helping Vice launch the magazine in the UK. So we were both at that kind of real grassroots level. Um, and we began talking to those guys and us breaking into the world of brands and agencies. And that was how I traded us back into profit. Instead of just doing £5,000 deals for some more flyers, I found the guys who would spend £50,000, you know, getting their stuff out onto the streets. They were buying the credibility that we had. And I once both sold the soul of this really super cool bit of youth culture and taught myself how to run a business and discovered the power and also the problem with marketing. We know what the power is. What is the problem with marketing? Selling shit that we don't need to people who don't want it. Yeah, that is a problem. It is a problem. You were in marketing. You sold that concept. You sold stuff and you found out the problem, but you kept doing it because you had to make a living. Well, I didn't. I, I stopped there and then. Uh, you know, we were. It was the turn of the century. Uh, thinking back, you know, Enron were the poster guys of CSR at mm-hmm. the time. Uh, Nike were the poster guys of sweatshop labor. Right. Um, no logo had just been published. You know, we were in a very different, very different conversation. Um, the September the 11th uh, takes place. You know, the, the whole world seems like it's shifting on its fulcrum. And there's this nascent conversation about consumerism and the, the world's biosphere capacity. Currently, we're about 60% over our biosphere capacity. It's simply unsustainable. And that makes you start to really wonder whether the idea of consumerism is in some way flawed. You know? And if so, advertising is potentially a signature on humanity's own suicide note. So what is that industry going to do about it? And so I came up with an idea. Um, could I start, having learned all I had, an ethical marketing agency, or was that an oxymoron? Mm. You know, could it could could they coexist? Could you begin to use the power of brands and their influence, but to effect positive change, not just shifting more units of pointless product X? And so, when did you really begin that in earnest? The early two thousands. Two thousand one. Let's do two distinct periods: two thousand one until the financial crisis. Okay. What happened in that first period? So I launched Liberty. Uh, as the ethical marketing agency that would take your brand and connect it to the hard-to-reach cool youth audience. In so doing, we would help you create a campaign with your brand that would also have a demonstrable positive effect. There wasn't just CSR or an afterthought. This would be core to the strategy with an idea that as a Trojan horse, we would begin to change industry and change business by proving that you can do well and do good at the same time. That was the massively naive plan. Well, why was it so naive? I would say it's aspirational. Uh, is it? Is it really that naive? It feels more commonplace now. I think that narrative uh, has really taken hold. And now there's a different criticism of it about uh, whether or not it's shallow. But at the time, yes, it was seen as particularly naive. There was nobody else selling that in 2001, 2002. What happened as the years go by coming into the financial crisis? You're getting some takers. You're making some money. You're building a company. How many people were working for you at that time? So up until 2008, we grew the business to around about 80 people. Wow. Um, in 2000, and it was just after the crisis, we launched internationally. And we'd, we'd set up separate offices in the UK. We were testing that out. Um, and I think there's a, there's a you, you'll have seen this from the different people you've spoken to. I think even Dan Pink, who I saw you'd spoken to, talks about this. That it was a process of part of the entrepreneurial journey where it was classic savior complex. You know, I was out to subject the world to, <laughs> to my I see the glowing halo over you <laughs> yeah, and sainthood. And the model was 
a great big warehouse uh, space, like, like lots of marketing agencies that you'll go into, right? A lot more Macs than the Mac store, exposed brick walls, cool wooden floors. Um, the cool thing about Liberty, though, above and beyond all of that stuff, was that we shared the space with young people, typically young people who didn't really get mainstream opportunities. So if there were 50 staff, the the, the measure of success was that there were more young people in the office than there were full-time staff. Hmm. So Brixton is like... Or was then like South Bronx or, you know, a bit of a tough area. Lots of challenges going on. Clients wouldn't normally want to go that far, you know, outside the classic agency neighborhood. Um, but what took place was this really interesting melting pot because the young people who were involved in gang-related crime could help inform a campaign that we might be working on for the Met Police far better than anyone else. Mm. And if we got the PlayStation brief, actually, who else do you want to talk to other than, you know, fairly hardcore bunch of 16-year-old gamers who would never speak to that brand? Mm. And suddenly this kind of mid-layer that most agencies or any kind of business relies on of research and insight, which is largely done by some well-educated middle-class individuals who have their own filters over it and done in a quiet room, suddenly we had this raw access. We had thousands of kids coming through the door. Mm. They were stealing the opportunity from us to be listened to, to be taken seriously. They could get their hands on our projects. You could have a young man coming off the street, sunglasses on, hood up, called knowledge or pace. Um, you know, three or four days later, he sat in two or three meetings with real life clients. He's coming in in chinos and a shirt and has reverted to Alan or you know, Jonathan or his real name <laughs> because suddenly he's being listened to and taken seriously in a way that has never happened his entire life. Wow. That's very impressive. And so when the financial crisis hit, did you find something different change in terms of your client base and how you ran your business? So this would be one of those decisions. We took a really bold and risky decision to go for it. And so we moved out of smaller premises and we took on a massive space that we couldn't afford, uh, that we couldn't even fill. You know, the, the, the signals were clear there was going to be a downturn. But we'd, A, realized that we had something unique. Mm. I'd spent six years of executing my mission to save children's lives. I'd grown up a little bit as an entrepreneur and begun to realize that our job wasn't here to save these kids. It was to provide an opportunity for them to save themselves. Mm-hmm. And it moved from being much more of a kind of charity mindset, much more interested in doing the good work in the community. And we realized the opportunity we had from a marketing point of view. Our clients then, we, we were working with um, Google and YouTube in their early days. Uh, Facebook came to us very, very early on. We started to win some much more sizable contracts. We won a couple of big European pieces of work. We started to really punch above our weight. And it was in this difficult time, those who are going to survive are the ones with a niche. Mm-hmm. And so we actually... Uh, went against the grain and expanded and put all of the profit that we generated back into growing the business, took this risk and came into 2009, incredibly strong position. And we started hoovering up work and we started pitching against agencies far, far bigger than us and winning. And this shift happened. We'd we'd always got really interesting people wanting to work for us because they wanted to change the world. Right. Right. I've, I've, I've hit a certain age in my life. I've been on all these great agencies. Now I want to do something that makes a difference. And we were always so proud that they were showing up at our door. And then we realized they weren't the people you want. You don't want the do-gooders who've had enough of the industry. And then this next generation came through who said, I see what you're doing and this coalescence of trying to do the right thing by doing great work, that's really interesting. And I want to use this power of purpose, not to give back or to be patronizing in a way, but to do even better work. I want to do the best work of my life. And I see the model that you've got is a a chance to do that. And then it took off. So then why, what prompted you, things are going great, what prompted you to sell and go off on a different tangent. So I'd set it up when I was 24, and I'd said at the time, surrounded by these amazing young people who viewed me as old, um, 
that I would hand over the reins when I was 40 because at that point, you know, 24, 40 seems like never going to happen. Death, you know, some distant place that will never arrive. Stay tuned. It only gets worse. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> and it was becoming clear that it was coming close. So I'd, I'd, ever since that first crisis, I continued to read um, business books. And so I'd read about founder syndrome several times. I could feel that beginning to creep in. I've lived by that maxim of Eleanor Roosevelt's that if you want to know the next thing that you should truly do, you should know what truly scares you the most. And in all honesty, I was beginning to coast. We'd set up African offices um, across three different African countries. The, the, the model was really dynamic and effective. Thousands of young people every year were viewing us as a transformation engine and going on to spark incredible careers. The, the client lineup ranges from Netflix to PlayStation to Unilever. And I was possibly coasting a little mm. bit. I was causing problems more than I was. What kind of problems. problems would you cause? I've always enjoyed the, the slight chaos of it all. You know, I've always enjoyed the guys who are really on the edges. You know, the the, the ex offenders, the drug dealers. You know, and, and we didn't. It's a very hard thing to manage an agency when you've got kids in the room kicking off, kids with mental health issues, kids mm -hmm. who might have become homeless. And I would always open the door to those. You know, when, once we'd had a really nice, successful, and strategic program. <laughs> <laughs> truly helped a group of young people I would always invite a little more chaos into the room so did you sell the firm to a group of your younger people did you transfer do you still have ownership in it yeah I still own about just under a third of the business uh, I'd identified a younger generation of future leaders um, a, a woman particularly called Alex Goat who I'd mentored and managed she's now the CEO so she's taken over completely and I agreed that I would do a transitionary year um, of doing a day less every single uh, quarter, so that eventually it handed over to them. And in retrospect, I think it would have been a better camp, better strategy to just get hit by a bus in January, and they would have, <laughs> they would have dealt with it all a lot quicker. Yeah, you get that key man insurance comes pouring in, exactly. and then we'll figure it out from yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and and that was where the book came in because I knew that I needed a a distraction project, something like an airbag in a crash that would fill every available inch of space around me. Uh, and again, what's the scariest thing you could do for me? Dyslexic. I'd never managed to make it to university, so non-academic. And really, Liberty is the, the, I think, 11th of a series of startups over that period of time. Don't Panic by that point was, I think, one of the most creatively awarded agencies at Cannes that year. Liberty picked up the Grand Prix at the Beamers, not just for its work, but for changing the industry. So such a level of success that we'd achieved, the last thing you want to do is rest on your laurels or there. you could just rest and relax and figure out what's next but you didn't in other words like I think a lot of people do take that moment and they say here's some space hmm. let me just sit with myself what does that feel like my first little girl was three you know we my wife was pregnant the state of the world it was 2016 so you know there's a certain event taking place here there was a certain and event one there taking place there mm. um so i spent nearly 20 years as a social entrepreneur trying to work on strategies and pull the world's biggest business and governments into making a difference and what was the result didn't seem that good i felt despondent if i looked to a leadership level that there's a vacuum of imagination and ideas and i felt massively inspired by the network of young people that have grown around me Really, the entrepreneurs, mm. you know, speaking expressly, the, the international sets of entrepreneurs that I met, and there I found leadership and a clear sense of what the world could look like. And all the really senior guys I look to, I, I you know, there's a lot of talk of disruption, transformation. Yeah, baloney. A lot of baloney as mm. well. Um, and I worked with successive prime ministers in the UK, and you know, gradually that feeling of as you grow up, waiting to meet the grown-ups. 
and they're just not there. There is no grand plan. Did you have an um, an inkling of going into politics yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I've always been attracted to it until you know, I spent enough time in Westminster to realize that that's not the place currently that change is going to be made. There's a place for policy and regulation, of course, but it's mired with so much else. I don't think that it is of the different levers we've got the chance to make a change it is it has a limited ability to move as fast as the change that's required mm. and i don't see very few organizations actually moving at that kind of speed or galvanizing in a large and consensus form around the bigger challenges that we've got okay so now this leads us to the book which is like your publisher is probably thinking jesus jill just get to the book we're trying to sell books here why are you doing this um <laughs> Probably. (laughs) Not you, though. We're having fun. The book is called Be More Pirate. How did you come upon the pirate theme? What what got you there? So these young guys, the entrepreneurs that I I mentor, and when I give you a sense of it, the um, one part of me was really aware of the cliche, the risk of a cliche that I could become, you know, 40 year old, middle class, middle aged white dude. I don't think you're middle class. I think you're more than middle class. You seem like upper class to me. Just, to, I mean, I just want to point that out because everybody always, oh, I'm middle class. You're not middle class. You're upper class. Like you made a ton of money. You grew a big company. Mm-hmm. So you're upper class. Okay. You didn't go to Oxbridge, but you know, you got money. Let's just say that you're not the, cli- you're the cliche of the, the cliche. white, rich do-gooder. <laughs> Let's okay, do that. There's another cliche. A, a, a dangerous, a dangerous breed mm. um, of philanthro capitalists uh, inflicting their view of how the world should be saved on a, on another world. I'm very skeptical of that. And I, I am skeptical generally. I've been part of the social enterprise movement for 20 years. What's the impact? I've helped businesses create their huge global purpose strategies. You know, where are we? And this undemocratic situation where multiple large organizations are deciding in small pockets how to change the world you know takes us away from the the necessary components of democracy that actually lift people out of of the one would hope one would hope truly so yeah filled with uh, reflection and again with this source of energy that perhaps could stop me becoming this cliche because you know okay so guy exits agency becomes author and public speaker um and you know again moves further away from the real levers of change so workshopping the ideas for this book with the young entrepreneurs, the change makers, the social entrepreneurs, the innovators in tough areas. So I came to Baltimore and worked with social entrepreneurs in Illinois, Detroit and Chicago, in Athens regularly with the re- reverse diaspora of smart grads who've gone back to start businesses in a really troubled economy. Um, in the townships of South Africa, in, in, in Brixton to Bradford, in every tough environment I could find where there's no MBAs going on here, there are individuals who are using the levers of business and enterprise to start real and lasting change. That, to me, feels like the fulcrum of what's next. You know, in Schumpter's great economic waves, we're clearly coming out of the information age. What comes next? And for me, the, the hybrid, this, this notion, this almost the catalytic converter of businesses of our time, recognizing the, the exhaust fumes of the business model of the latter part of the 20th century has had some negative consequence. What comes next? Because capitalism as a force isn't going anywhere, nor should it. But perhaps we do need to you know, have our electric engine revolution. And mm. these, things, these worlds have got to join up. And it's not good enough to think that uh, the change that's required should just sit with a bunch of policymakers who aren't living up to their job either. So that revolution, that that integration is what, what fuels my interest. And I wrote the first 20,000 words of a book that was the most boring, patronizing, 
TED Talk of a book <laughs> that the world's ever seen. Hey, I have a lot of proposals that are in the drawer that my <laughs> agent's like, wow, that was bad. <laughs> hey, like, I, my agent said to me, I, at one point I used this analogy about like Weight Watchers, and he's like, okay, what you just wrote is a proposal that says eat less and exercise more, and it's really boring. That was this. It was called Purpose First, and it was the argument for a renaissance of business. I'm exhausted gonna, listening yeah, to I mean, that, that, just that title. I sat down with some of the guys that I work with, these young men and women, and they were like, Sam, you know, what's happened to you? Where's all that? Where, where's, all yes. your kind of, where's all the pirates? And I went back to my desk, and I wrote down this note, where are all the pirates? And it's a metaphor that I've used, many business leaders have used. There's a Steve Jobs quote on the front, the famous one, I'd rather be a pirate than join the Navy. Of course, we know. In, it does look like Steve Jobs blurbed your book from the grave. That's what it's supposed to be. <laughs> I put that on the book pitch um, because, you know, on a book pitch, all books should have a blurb on the cover, right? And, you know, two years before it was written, there wasn't one. Uh, and then I think it just stayed there long enough that eventually people stopped asking a question and began assuming that I had permission. And so I never corrected anybody. I love that. But now uh, in America, I'm expecting to get sued. I'm sure. Uh Pirates challenge the establishment's authority and ownership of new ideas. Pirates innovate at the margins, free from the order of the ordinary. Pirates incubate their ideas in an intensive open space environment. Pirates have a dual focus, fortune, then fairness. Pirates' acute focus on micro needs inadvertently creates macro solutions. Pirates tell their story at scale through their use of subversive tactics. Eat, sleep pirate repeat i like that so the pirates that some people are now thinking of are pirates of the caribbean from their trip to disney world or land what is your pirate we are not talking about somali pirates chinese pirates viking pirates or all sorts of other really interesting pirate stories these guys are worth taking a look at uh, at precisely a 300 year window because there is so much similarity. We know that history works in cycles and the challenges that we face are historic. We live in historic times and they are not going to be solved by the same kind of activity that led us here in the first place. I think it's Einstein you know, who, who pointed that one out. So we need a different set of solutions. Look at you, by the way, quoting Eleanor Roosevelt, Einstein. You want to quote Churchill before you go just to make sure you don't leave anyone Never, else out? Ever, oh, ever, I ever hate give him. up. Oh, no. Never. Um, <laughs> Okay, let's go back to our pirates. Uh, similar, you know, it's a, it's a kind of leadership against all odds. And I think that there's something pronounced in this period of time that's often overlooked. We've inherited the story of Jack Sparrow and Captain Hook. This is less than half of the truth. And once I started uh, digging into the research, which was a real, you know, new exercise for me at the Greenwich Maritime Museum, the British Museum, the British Library, the other side of the story that's so relevant to now has been not just lost, but deliberately written out of the history books. So for a little bit of pirate context, 300 years ago, you had a deeply stratified system. You had a millennial generation, the millennials of the 18th century. The average age of pirates was 28, locked out of their future, a future that where really the only certainty was uncertainty. Um, an establishment who had lost sight of their own future and other than their own self-interest weren't up to much there was a backdrop of international internet connected conflict and there was a new level of innovation and disruption causing mass redundancy so so actually you know there's a surprisingly amount of contextual comparisons and these guys uh, decided rather than to make the great mistake that we all risk which is to believe that the way things are is the way things have to be mm. they decided to step outside the rules of the day and create some new ones and that's really the nuance there's a lot of talk of rule breaking in the book but really the art of rule breaking is in writing new rules and this, I think, is the opportunity which is so relevant to us now. What are the new rules that we're going to step into when so obviously many of the rules that we've been following 
are no longer fit for purpose and in fact increasingly flawed. And interesting that in your research you come up with this weird amount of diversity, the pirate cohort, that women, there are female pirates. I never saw any of those depicted, so they're usually like the love interest. So talk a little bit about that. There's a long list of pirate innovations that are usually necessary to bring people into the space of like, what? So to cover off a few, yes, of course, there's this level of diversity. So whether that's uh, integration of people of color, the pirates were releasing slaves, not just releasing slaves, but releasing slaves and inviting them into their communities with equal status, pay and say. Um, there was a lot less women than there were you know, in terms of ethnic diversity, but certainly there were female figureheads and leaders within the pirate community. The very best story of all is Anne Bonny. Um, actually, probably the best story in the whole book of Anne Bonny, who led from the absolute front and, and was a figure unique in her time because at this point, of course, women weren't just regarded as being a lesser intelligence but lesser capacity and here she is leading fearlessly from the front of a pirate ship fighting the royal british navy with as much strategy bravery and ability as anybody else um in fact more so than many others um, earning her, her place as the pirate queen but it continues this notion of um fair pay you know as was much discussed in the 2008 2009 collapse the fact that ceos pay had reached more than 300 times multiplier of average salaries was indicated as a, a, a part of the, the problematic situation on pirate ships didn't happen there was an upper and lower index link plus there was total transparency before a crew set out uh, as there was around compensation so if you jill lost a leg on board a pirate ship 800 pieces of eight would be your compensation the first time a written down form of social insurance had been seen which takes another 150 years before it becomes law and then not until the 1940s that it became an inalienable human right uh, a system of halacracy as we call it now of, of self-organizing teams and flat structures which allowed every single person on board to have an equal say in the matters of hand the strategy as it were so in truth they were more democratic organizations than even athenian democracy where only the white blokes got the vote um there was a system of dual governance which was predates the companies act or the charities act or really even any two-house system of democracy where the quartermaster was given equal say to the captain who had in charge of the strategy and a captain that could be voted out at any moment given a true level of accountability that we rarely see in any kind of leaders the the invention of the the pirate brand the skull and crossbones the but which which our guest Sam Conniff Allende is wearing on a suit that he spent too much money on but the interior <laughs> let's just open the kimono there for a moment and so the uh, the interior is skull and crossbones and he's also wearing is there a skull and crossbone on your um, pocket there is yeah yes. mm-hmm your pocket uh, hanky. Pocket hanky. Uh, the so- brand was so interesting, though, because nobody had mastered branding at this point. They didn't exist. And the skull and cr- the, they, they'd bastardized the international communication system of the time, the maritime flag system. Uh, they started adorning it with the skulls and skeletons, and the different captains had different ones, you know, drinking blood or dancing or various you know, terrifying emblems. And they put them all together under one unifying brand to drive their business model. They had no chance of competing on an equal status. They were outnumbered 45 to 1. They couldn't go and replenish or restore because they'd be hung. So they created a brand that delivered their bottom line with a singular message, which was surrender or die, but we can discuss the morality of that. But it drove a business model and made them effective. And it actually also made them, according to some pirate economists, one of the more peaceful organizations at sea at the time because it was not in their interest to have recourse to violence. And even the most famous of all pirates, Blackbeard, who really is the archetype of the pirate brand, there's no historical record of him actually ever killing anyone, which kind of really underlines that point about the power and potency of their brand Mm. delivered so well the message that took them around the world and kind of informs that that which we know now 
but none of the remainder of those innovations, which are comparable with you know, the Second World War or the turn of the 19th century or the dawn of Silicon Valley for when a small group of humans stood up against extraordinary odds and proved incredible results. What should we take from this going forward? There are a lot of people who are listening to this. They're like, okay, I'm not a leader. I'm not an entrepreneur. You know, sometimes I think of like some of the pirate aspects and I think of some of those young technology companies and I think of the problems they get into, which is, yes, they're all about like breaking convention and doing all this stuff, but they don't take responsibility for what their ideas now are creating and what has happened. So yeah. what, what hath what hath been wrought. Yes. Uh, and so, so two things. One is, does that pirate mentality, how do, how do you sustain that in a mature business? And number two, if you're not the leader, what should you take from this book? So both excellent questions and dawned on me uh, early on. You know, the I didn't want to just write this book for entrepreneurs or my immediate kind of circle. And as I was testing and, and, and workshopping the material, what became much more interesting was not the group who immediately self-identify as pirates, you know, the rogues, the rebels, and the, all the kind of, uh, the entrepreneur crew is actually where we're going to really make a change is within the large organizations and it's the individuals within the large organizations who are interested in doing things differently but don't feel able to mm. don't feel they have anywhere near access or leverage towards the levers of power that might bring around difference even if they've got the ideas even if perhaps they've got the answers rarely do they have a forum to be listened to so that's and if that's you listening that is absolutely who this book is designed for how do you bring about a change within a large-scale organization to meaningfully make a difference how do you use these principles to not just come to work and do your job but to come to work and do the best job of your life you know that's what this is about we all know that the situation we face on a big scale whether we're talking about the threats to you know, the democracy which we must cherish, the environment which we must protect, uh, the economy and, and the challenges that come with it. You know, these are large-scale problems, and they are our problems. They are the problems connected to all of our businesses. And if in some way we don't think we're addressing them, then we need to widen the aperture of what it's doing. We're either part of the solution or part of the problem, and therefore we have to make a choice. And by we, I mean you, dear listener. Yes, and so how? So I've identified these five steps, these five kind of parts of change that the pirates seem to use and then I've brought them into the 21st century and that's how I found my, my modern pirates and they um, move from the simple act of rebellion an empowering moment for every single individual within any organization to just break the rules and see what happens and chances are very little will happen this this notion of seeking forgiveness rather than permission to enter into new territories um, right because it's so much easier for someone above you to say no than yes I, I learned very early on how small my marketing budget was going to be and, and I was going to really have to bring my own ideas and the ideas of the book to bear and this hack kind of formed when you hear no what you can do is pretend that what you heard was go so you put forward some ideas, you're told absolutely no, and so you go and put them into place anyway. And it's this principle of seeking forgiveness rather than, than permission, of discovering the accountability, the surprising accountability that comes with pirates when you write your own rules. I just want to interrupt for one second. Of course, for those of you listening in financial services, that does not mean breaking the law. <laughs> so we must make some little, and, and any business, you know, you can't steal and say, you know, and you can't break rules that are like, regulatory pieces of your business. Don't do that. So I am talking about professional rule breaking okay. is how I've termed this. And in professional rule breaking, kind of one of my measures of success is perhaps nearly getting fired once a year. So the important word there is nearly. Um, mm. I do not mean regulatory frameworks and I do not mean breaking laws. What I'm talking about is status quo, bad habits, conventions, you know, all of the stuff. Why do we do it like that around here? Oh, I don't know. That's the way it's always been done. Yes. As soon as you're into that territory of question, Usually, the reason we're there is three three things. Power, somebody senior said we should do it like that. 
precedent, it's always been done like that, or perspective, so-and-so is smart and they said it. All of those things are paper walls. And what begins to happen when you push at them, when you ask why, when you present a new idea, that, that, that you begin to get into a space of rewriting the rules. And an interesting exercise for any of you within large-scale organizations who are frustrated by a habit, a tendency, a convention that you follow, is just simply to start charting a new course and begin doing something a different way. And the only, you know, in the book, what, what this really, the definition of this is a mutiny. Now, a mutiny we know has a negative connotation. What happens if we reframe that and take some ownership over it? Me and three guys working in this department have got a much better way of addressing quarterly budgeting. You know, we, we've been told we're not allowed to do it, but we're going to prove it. We're going to use the kind of agile approach of technology. We're going to use the bravery of pirates. And we're going to stand up and know that we're professionals and we're doing the best thing and the right thing for this organization. We because actually, do- if you say that, I'm sorry to interrupt, but if you do say, like, what is the best thing for the organization and you found the best thing for yep. the organization, that's when I think it's worth breaking convention. It may not be the best thing for your boss. But if again, if you're putting like the corpus of this organization first then I think that's a, an interesting risk to be taking. Professional rule breaking is about getting to a place of doing your best work, being your best self at work. The, the, the ability we all have to stand up against the world and, and change the world is there. You know, if, if, if you're a threat, if something you passionately believe in, if those who you love are at risk, you know, you, everyone will stand up. But we don't bring that notion to work. Even though our career is so important, most of us love the organizations we work with and we know it's got to be pushed in a direction of, of significance and meaning, yet we acquiesce. And why yeah, do we, we say do that? Because yes. we're wimps. Well, I think we're we're in fear of losing our jobs or, or that notion being... Change is scary. Change is scary. And I think really, when I've asked this, and I've asked it in many, many workshops, it comes down to three things. Projection of fear. They don't want me to do this. Perception that it might go wrong. Or admin. I've got just got too much on my plate. And those aren't good enough reasons not to bring your best world-changing self to work, to do the kind of work that is your legacy, you know, that, that is the work that will change this organization, do something that you're deeply proud of. And that's what this book is about, using the accessible points of pirates as people who set out to do things differently in a positive sense to give you that moment of confidence to try something new and prove that it can work. All right, before I let you go, we talked about your best money or career. What was your worst um, nearly my worst was uh, with the launch of the book, realizing there was no marketing budget behind it. Penguin has massive offices right in the heart of London. And so on the day of launch, I fly posted the entire front of their office and turned it into a huge advertising billboard. And I did it with a faked permission letter from the chief exec that I forged. I got a couple of lads to turn up with me in high-vis vests and we plastered the front, the size of a bus, we turned it into a billboard. And I was threatened with having my book deal taken away from me on the day of launch. Oh, my God. I love that one. Sam Conniff Allende, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much to our guest, Sam Conniff Allende. The book is called Be More Pirate. Remember, we drop new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday. Sometimes we sneak a little extra in. If you have a question and want to come on the show with us, just send us a note. Ask Jill at JillOnMoney.com. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our executive producer. We're distributed by Cadence 13. And if you have any question about things that we talk about throughout the show, just go to JillOnMoney.com. And while you're there, don't forget, you can order the book, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, 13 Ways to Right Your Financial Wrongs. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week.